Hi, and welcome to Wrongful, a podcast where we look at cases of potential wrongful convictions. Follow along as we introduce you to our first case, the trial of Zachariah Anderson. And welcome to Wrongful, Episode 5, The Trial. If you've been following our previous episodes, we went into the backstory of the Zachariah Anderson trial. So far, we've reviewed trial testimony, evidence, and our own research findings trying to make sense of the narrative that would be presented in trial. Today, in our final episode, we finally made it to the moment where many people around the world would become aware of the case for the first time. February 28, 2023. Media cameras would be set up to capture the trial under the headline, The Obsessed Ex-Boyfriend Murder Trial. Notably, Law & Crime and Court TV would be streaming it live on YouTube as many trial watchers and true crime addicts tuned in to watch the teased love triangle case unfold before their eyes. Immediately, speculation on which celebrity Zach resembled was made, and armchair psychologists began throwing out their diagnoses. In this episode, we'll be exploring the rest of the witness testimony we haven't yet discussed, some eyebrow-raising moments, and finally, the verdict and subsequent reactions. District Attorney Michael Gravely would kick off his trial opening statements, giving his theory of what happened on the night of May 17th when Rosalio disappeared. He painted the defendant as an obsessed and jealous ex who stopped at nothing, not even murder, to exert his control over his ex-girlfriend Sadie. The defense would then give their opening statement. They focused on showing that Zach and Sadie had an on-and-off relationship, and their relationship remained complicated throughout that time period where Sadie did not appear to be frightened by Zach. They made the point that nothing at the crime scene was tied back to Zach, and nothing on Zach's property was tied to Rosalio. They tried to focus on the lack of investigation done by police. Here's a part of the defense's opening statement. The essence of this case is actually quite simple. The state just walked you through for quite some time about the evidence and how it thinks it's going to come through during this trial. But at the end of the day, law enforcement nor the state have no idea what happened to Mr. Gutierrez's body. They don't know when exactly anything happened in Mr. Gutierrez's apartment. They have no idea where any alleged remains of Mr. Gutierrez's body is. They have none of that. There are no witnesses that saw my client, Mr. Zachariah Anderson, at 3709 15th Avenue in Kenosha on May 17th, 2020. They have absolutely no witnesses that say, hey, we saw Mr. Anderson and he had bloody clothes or he was acting suspicious. They have none of that because none of that evidence exists. No body, no human remains, no indication of cleaning up a crime scene despite what they say state occurred in that van. I'll talk to you a little about that later. They don't have any of that. Yet they decided to build a script and the evidence will show you this. They decided to build a script and tell a story and make Mr. Anderson 
the main character, despite the fact that they didn't have any of this evidence. No body, no human remains, no witnesses, nothing. As we mentioned in our last episode, Zach's attorney was interrupted during her opening when she tried to make the point that the police did not look into many people, including Sadie. They spent the following day arguing about whether the evidence could be presented in trial. They finally came to an agreement and the trial was able to proceed. Several days later, Nicole Muller was able to complete her opening statement. Law enforcement's failure to investigate leads and to effectively process a crime scene is critical in this case. There's no body, no human remains, no murder weapon, no witnesses that can tell you exactly what happened. Yet they wanted to go with the narrative that it must have been Mr. Anderson and that was someone that they looked into everything possible. They ignored everything else. They ignored the idea that it could be anyone else other than Mr. Anderson. And you'll hear that they meticulously searched Mr. Anderson's property, not just his house, his whole property. No body, no human remains, no evidence that a, there had been a huge cleanup at a crime scene, no murder weapon. Not only did they search his house, they also searched his family's tree farm, an 80-acre farm, top to bottom, multiple law enforcement agencies, every acre, no body, no human remains, no murder weapon, no evidence of a crime scene cleanup. They also searched Miss Susan Brown Williamson's home, and that was the place that Mr. Anderson had gone um, in the morning to work that the state claims is where Mr. Anderson, I guess, chopped up a body and put it in bags. They searched that property meticulously, not only the house, but the entire grounds. No body, no human remains, no murder, weapon, nothing, nothing of evidentiary value. They then searched all of the bodies of water that were near that home and Mr. Anderson's home, not Lake Michigan, but quarries and little lakes. And they had technology that could um, go all the way down to the bottom to see if there was anything there. That search also revealed nothing. So the person they chose as their main character, the only person they investigated in this case, they did all of that and it yielded nothing. Mr. Anderson, as he sits in front of you today, is presumed innocent. And he must stay that way. Because the evidence in this case, as it will come in through this trial, will not establish that Mr. Anderson committed the alleged crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. And for that reason, when the defense comes and speaks to you, when the evidence is done, we will ask that you return the only just verdict, and that's a verdict of not guilty. Thank you. Much of the witness testimony that we would hear in trial, we've explored throughout our episodes thus far. But there were some testimonies we've not yet explored that we need to go into in this final episode. We discussed Nareda Macias in our previous episode, the girl that Rosalio had a date with the night he went missing. If you remember in our last episode, Nareda's meeting with the DA in secret and the subsequent failure to disclose her change in testimony had caused a mistrial the year prior. Due to these and other egregious patterns of misconduct, the defense pushed twice for District Attorney Michael Gravely to be removed as the prosecutor of the case. 
The first time was in January of 2023 during a motion hearing just before the trial occurred. The defense requested for the judge to disqualify and remove Gravely from the case, and the judge denied that motion. It's the very same hearing in which Michael Gravely calls Michael Campbell a hero for trespassing on Zach's property and inserting himself into the police's investigation. The second time the defense requested for him to be recused from the case was during the jury trial before the testimony of Nareda Macias. Again, they cited the fact that the DA had inserted himself as a witness in the case by meeting privately with her, and the defense had actually placed him on their witness list with the intent to call him to the stand. The judge once again denied their motion to remove Gravely altogether, but did compromise by having him remove himself from the courtroom during Nareda's testimony. We went into much of Nareda's testimony in our previous episodes, but basically what we have here is another witness who changed their story as soon as they talked to the DA. We saw this also happen with Lene, a neighbor of Rosalio's. She stated she thought she heard an argument for Rosalio's apartment on May 18th, 2020, around 1 p.m., which would have been the day after he went missing. She stated she knew Rosalio had kids and did not think anything of it. She did not see who was arguing. Lene later changed her statement, saying the officer must have misheard her. She stated that she heard a scream in the hallway outside of Rosalio's apartment around 9 p.m. on 5-17-2020, coincidentally lining up with Gravely's proposed timeline. Her change in testimony seems like more than just an officer having misheard what she said. The dates and the account of what happened don't match up at all. She went from hearing an argument in the middle of the afternoon to hearing a scream at night. These are stark differences. Lene would refuse to talk to the defense after her change in statement and would also refuse to appear to testify. Instead, her statement was read as stipulated in court. Eventually, we get to Marquand Washington's testimony. We also reviewed much of this in our previous episode including how the DA went jail snitch shopping right before the trial and that Washington stood to benefit from his testimony. Washington then gave a very strange story in which Zach supposedly confessed to him, but there were also some other noteworthy things that happened during his testimony. When Marquand Washington was giving his testimony about how Zach confessed to him shouting in his sleep, there was a point where DA Gravely had been mouthing along with Washington as he recounted his dream. And what did he shout that you heard? He said, die, 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 motherfucker. Now I realize you cannot see this through an audio stream, so I encourage you to visit our Facebook group to watch the video of this play out. But Gravely can be seen mouthing the words, die, die, as the witness says them up until the camera pans out. He would be called out on this behavior in court, and if the trial wasn't crazy enough at this point, something even more unexpected would occur. During the intermission in court, during Washington's testimony regarding D.A. Gravely mouthing to him, the judge could be heard listening to a live YouTube coverage of the case while waiting for the jury to come back. It would be discovered that the YouTube stream belonged to the content creator who goes by the name Recovery Addict. Recovery Addict was stunned to hear his own voice on the court audio. Judge Schroeder can be heard saying, now we're getting commentary on the case, when he heard Recovery Addict talking about the trial through his own laptop speakers. According to Recovery Addict, the judge was seen watching his stream throughout the trial that day. How much commentary on the case did Judge Schroeder watch or listen to, and could that have had any impact on his rulings? We saw another case recently where the judge was caught texting and scrolling social media during a trial and may lose her job as a result. The video of Gravely mouthing would be shown in court, but he would also be seen mouthing along with the testimony of several other key witnesses, notably Detective Lauren Anschutz, Lisa Treffinger, and O.A., Zach and Sadie's minor daughter. How did Gravely know the exact verbiage of so many witnesses? 
I think now's a good time to talk about some of our thoughts on this as we listen to the trial over and over for our research. One thing that stood out, especially watching back, was that the vast majority of Gravely's questions to his witnesses were extremely leading, often giving a multiple choice question. Consistently, the pattern seemed to be that he would ask, did this happen or did that happen? And the witness would almost always select the second option. Or he would provide the actual testimony himself and have the witness just confirm or deny what he said. I'm not sure what this all means in terms of trial prep with his witnesses, but it was an oddly consistent pattern. The big problem with Gravely leading his witnesses is that on direct examination, attorneys are not supposed to be asking leading questions because it suggests the desire of a specific answer and has the potential to mislead testimonial evidence. Let's say an attorney wants to ask their witness about what they saw when they arrived at a crime scene. They should ask questions like, what did you observe on the floor? Which gives the witness the opportunity to explain in their own words what they recall about the floor. But if the attorney asks instead, did you see blood on the floor? It tells the witness the answer they're looking for, which is that they saw blood. Although the witness may have come to the same conclusion on their own, it opens up the possibility that the suggestion could taint their personal lived experience, recollection, or opinion. Although we saw this consistently throughout with many of the state's key witnesses, we wanted to draw your attention to this pattern of leading for the highly debated speck of DNA that was found in Zach's van, item A1. We believe that this was the biggest reason that the jury decided to convict Zach of the homicide charges, because it is arguably the only connection he had to the crime. Listen closely to the way this spec is presented and ask yourself during each clip, who gave me the details on that item? We will break it down as well. Um, then, uh, was there another place that you uh, talked about, uh, identified as uh, A1? Yes, there was. Okay, so I'm now going to show you, uh, again, uh, from Exhibit 1, uh, photo 313. And uh, is there a sticker there that uh, was uh, only there because the state crime lab decided to place it there to, to mark something that they thought was of interest? That is correct, yes. Okay, I Okay. so far as I start to present this particular piece of evidence, the DA is the one that tells us why the marker is placed in a particular spot of the vehicle and Lisa Treffinger just confirms it. So he doesn't ask her, what is that place card and why is it there? He tells her it was a place of particular interest, which is also leading the jury to believe that this spot was of greater interest somehow, even though the crime lab had placed markers on many places throughout the van. But because he didn't specifically present pictures of the other marked areas or note that they were of interest, it gives the impression that this item A1 was of higher value. It's like offering people two cars. You say, I have two cars and one is a BMW. Which one do you want? Of course they're going to say the BMW because you presented it with the name brand. But what you didn't tell them is that the other car is a Lamborghini, which would have been similarly good if not a better choice. It's a very clever but misleading tactic used by a lot of salesmen and in marketing to draw attention to the item they're selling. But again, it wasn't Lisa saying this particular item was of interest. It was DA Gravely. Let's listen to some more. At that point, ultimately, you've seen it in person, correct? Correct. You've seen it in context. You know where it's located. You know its characteristics by uh, being able to look at it and even enhanced, right? Correct. Okay. And now you are going to do a anal an analysis of it, I assume? That's correct. Okay. Using the usual machinery and methods as best you can, correct? That is correct, yes. All right. So um, 
you have told us previously on other samples that you did a chemical test for blood in multiple other samples. Do you recall that in your testimony? Yes, I do. Did you do that as to A1? No, I did not. Okay, so why? Why, why didn't you, if, if you thought this might be blood, why didn't you do it on this sample? This sample was so small, I'm, I'm like a pinhead size. Um, so again, I just wanted to use every amount that we had available uh, for testing. So now the DA has framed the experience Lisa had with this spec to make sure that everyone thinks she has an enhanced familiarity with it and inferred that she used the usual machinery and methods for testing it like she did with all the other samples, which again, she only confirms. We didn't play the clip here, but all the other samples from the van were subjected to a chemical testing for blood and all were found to be negative when tested. So now, a reasonable person would believe that the usual testing includes the chemical testing for blood and other substances because that's what was done to the other samples. But then interestingly, when she does provide her own testimonial details, she actually negates that she used all the usual testing because the sample was too small for anything other than DNA testing. So now we have another bait and switch happening. The DA is telling us one thing, and she is actually telling us another. Instead of him just asking her what testing methods she used. Okay, so you didn't do the chemical testing of A1 because you didn't have enough. That's correct, All right. yes. But did you do DNA testing to find out if it was going to be one of those sources of DNA you talked about? Hair, semen, saliva, all those things. Yes, I ran through the typical process. I run all the other uh, items through, yes. Just like all the other items we've talked about in this case. Yes, I did. Okay. Now DA Gravely is admitting that she didn't actually do the testing he had just asserted she had, but again leads the narrative by reiterating why she didn't do that testing, which she confirms. DA Gravely then poses a leading question, which asserts that the DNA testing she performed somehow simultaneously tested for substances such as hair, semen, saliva, etc. And again, she confirms even though she had just testified that she did not perform any testing other than pure DNA testing. She then expands on her testimony, asserting she ran this item A1 through all of the typical processes she did with all the other samples, which we already know to be false from her own testimony just prior. The way Lisa and DA Gravely jockey back and forth about what testing was performed is intentionally misleading so that the jury can't get a clear understanding of exactly what happened with this sample. So far, Lisa has really only told us in her own words, I didn't perform any testing other than DNA testing on this sample, but the DNA testing is the same for all samples. The DA is peppering in his own narrative about what the testing could or could not confirm through leading questions. Now we move on to when they start asserting this item A1 was the blood of Rosalios. And uh, what, if any, result did you get for A1 in terms of uh, a DNA profile? Uh, it was a single source male profile. And whose DNA uh, was that a match for, if any? Uh, who, what, what person was it a match for? Rosalio In that piece of testimony, Lisa states in her own words that item A1 is a single source male profile. She also provides the name Rosalio Gutierrez. But what you will have noticed is the words match never came out of Lisa Treffinger's mouth. She never, from her own testimony, asserted that the single source male profile was attributed to Rosalio Gutierrez. 
The DA asserted that in his leading question. He asked, who was it a match for? And she merely gave a name. That supposed expert never actually told us with her own mouth that Rosalio Gutierrez was a match for that profile or to what degree of certainty that was true. Although some might look at this as us just being nitpicky because she answered affirmatively, the point is that it's supposed to be her testimony, not the testimony of the DA that she just agrees with or fills in the blanks for. Testimony isn't supposed to be a mad lib page where the DA writes the story and the witnesses just fill in the adjectives, nouns, and adverbs to complete the picture. If the crime lab's result was that the DNA profile was indeed Rosalio, then all the DA would have to ask is, what were the results of your testing? And she could provide the rest in her own words as experts do every day in every other case. The fact that he led her through her testimony on this is extremely suspect because it begs the question, did they choose to present the evidence this way because her testifying that it was a match would be improper or even considered perjury? And finally, of her testimony, we have the following. Based on your conclusions and the results, was this human hair? No, it was not. Was it saliva? No, it was not. Was it semen? No. Uh, was it, um, was it, uh, skin cells, uh, that, uh, were simply skin scales without any, without uh, being another source? You know, there, there may have been skin cells, uh, but I, I couldn't say that for sure because you really can't see that. So I would say probably not skin cells. So your opinion to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty is that this is the blood of Rosalio Gutierrez. Is that fair? Yes, that is fair. So, uh, are you familiar with an email uh, that uh, you sent to a person named Angelina Gabrielle uh, back on uh, back in the time period of December fourth, two thousand twenty? Yes, I am. And uh, did you, uh, uh, in answer to a question uh, in that email, say we could not confirm it was blood in regards to this sample A one? Yes, I did. Wow, that's a lot to unpack, but let me start once again by reminding you that Lisa herself said with her own words that she did not perform any testing other than DNA testing on the sample in question. So when the DA runs through all these substances and Lisa shoots them down, it is completely baseless. She provided no explanation for how or why she knew the DNA sample wasn't semen, saliva, or otherwise. Then, most egregiously, the DA hands Lisa her opinion. So your opinion, to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, is that this is the blood of Rosalio Gutierrez. Is that fair? To which she responds simply, yes, that is fair. Once again, the testimony of the speck in question has come from the mouth of the DA, not from the expert Lisa Treffinger. That's basically the equivalent of him writing a term paper and her just signing her name on it. This opinion was nowhere to be found in Lisa's official report, nor the email to former DDA Angeline Gabrielle, where she states that she could not confirm it was blood. Again, this is a clever maneuver by the DA to be able to assert something into the trial that wasn't factual. By verbalizing the opinion himself, he was sidestepping having his witness knowingly provide false testimony. So now we possibly have the jury, along with many others watching along, who might now believe this speck is blood. 
even though it was never tested and confirmed to be blood, all based on the DA's testimony. I honestly don't think that the defense objected enough to the leading questions because of how much false testimony did come into the trial as a result. Nicole did remark during part of Lisa's testimony that all of Gravely's questions so far had been leading, but she hadn't been objecting to each and every leading question, which I think is a major missed opportunity. I was truly floored by how much of the testimony was blatantly given by the DA and just confirmed by the witnesses. He basically told them all what they were supposed to say. This is made even more evident considering those same witnesses would fall apart immediately when questioned by the defense, giving a lot of non-committal answers like, I don't know, I don't remember, and even getting hostile or evasive. We saw this with Sadie Beecham, Michael Campbell, Brandon Hendrickson, and OA in particular. One of the major things that would go viral on social media would be when OA took the stand. Zach had not seen or talked to his daughter in nearly three years. Here's a clip of OA from a recent interview she gave on Behind the Crime. I was looking at my dad the whole time. I haven't seen him in three years in person. It was incredible. (laughs) Being able to see him smile back at me and even the small parts of emotion that I got out of that trial meant the world to me. She was 15 years old now, and I'm sure she appeared much different to him, and I'm sure he appeared much different to her as well. The emotion could be seen on his face. Can you imagine seeing your child for the first time in several years? Three years is a huge span of time in a child's life, especially around the age when they are growing and developing so much. He wouldn't have even known how tall she was, how long or short her hair was, or even what her voice sounded like by then. He looked like he was totally enraptured in the details of her face, just soaking her in. But then, when Oe starts testifying, his face appears confused. Oe's face is not seen on camera, so we cannot see her facial expressions while testifying. But according to witnesses in the courtroom, Oe was just as emotional to see Zach for the first time, often staring over at him, smiling, and sometimes deliberately nodding and shaking her head at him defiantly after she testified to something. At the same time, because taking the stand is not a normal occurrence for a kid, she was also seen looking to her mom a lot if she didn't seem to know the answer to something as if she was hoping her mom would somehow give her the answer. She also kept trying to mouth things to Zach between testimony. This was not seen by the viewing audience, but it was noticed by those who attended court that day. As OA would get more heated in responses to the attorneys and continue to mouth occasionally to Zach, Zach made a parenting move that would go viral. He took his fingers and pinched them in front of his mouth. Here is Zach's attorney describing what she observed. Obviously, what we don't see in the clip is the other side because they're not filming. I will note that there were times that I did observe that when the state was asking their question, while asking, um, Mr. Anderson's daughter would look over at him and would mouth something under, like, just mouth something. I can't say what it is. I can't say when that happened. I did not personally observe Mr. Anderson make these gestures. I've watched it now on here, but so I can't say if it was in response to that or not. But I will say that that was occurring, and it could be that that was a response to her mouthing while the state was asking a question. The clip of him shushing her would be shared on social media and seen by thousands. People would claim it was witness intimidation and that he was trying to control and intimidate his daughter from testifying against him. Although what most of the TikTok failed to portray is that Oe wasn't even speaking when this occurred. It was between her testimony, so it's not like he made the move while she was speaking to influence her testimony. 
I can imagine if I were in Zach's position and witnessed my daughter trying to mouth to me, getting hostile and combative with a lawyer, I would probably have some sort of parental reflex to try to get her to calm down too. You have to keep in mind that they could both get in serious trouble if it looked like they were communicating, so it's possible Zach was also worried that they would somehow blame him if she continued, which they actually did try to do before the shushing incident came into play. The state tried to claim that Zach was trying to influence OA because he was smiling at her, and the defense refuted it, saying that they had been observing OA making faces at him and mouthing to him. The judge dismissed the concern, saying he hadn't witnessed anyone doing anything improper. Also, before the shushing incident came to light, Solomon has said that he and his dad alerted Zach's lawyer to the fact that they both saw Sadie and a couple of people with her using sign language in the gallery, and he was concerned that she might be signing to OA because it looked like they were signing and mouthing calm down. Zach's lawyers decided to sit on the information and just said to let them know if it keeps happening. At some point after that, the state was made aware of Zach's shushing incident by someone watching a live stream of the trial, and they tried to use it against Zach. Zach's lawyers then brought up the fact that Sadie had been seen doing the same thing, but by using American Sign Language instead, which she was fluent in and had taught the kids some of. So both Zach and Sadie were caught trying to parent their daughter on the stand, but Sadie would not be chastised for it on social media like Zach. Here is also part of Sadie's testimony when questioned about it by one of Zach's attorneys. Were you communicating with her in any other way without your hands, either facial expressions or whatever? Um, there was a moment where she got a little sassy up here, and my initial mom response was to go, shh, 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 shh. So if I did that, that would have been the only thing that I can recall I did. Okay. Sadie claims that she also had the parental reflex to attempt to calm her daughter, but it was Zach that would go viral in this moment, and he would be accused of being a controlling narcissist and intimidating the witness, despite Sadie doing the very same thing. As much as I can understand why people think that a defendant might have incentive to influence a witness's testimony, I also think that there isn't enough recognition about what incentive someone in the gallery might have to influence a witness's testimony as well. In fact, someone in the gallery might even be more influential to the witness testifying because the person in the gallery isn't under threat of being locked away for a long time. So the witness knows that they will have to go face that person and possibly reap the immediate consequences for their testimony if it isn't favorable to that person. So if people want to chastise Zach for that moment, regardless of the context or circumstance, they should be equally chastising Sadie for her influence on Owe as well. Owe had been an important witness for the state. She was the one who claimed to be with Zach on the night that he went to Sadie's house. While many came away applauding the teen for her bravery and sass given to the defense, I and others couldn't help but feel sad that she was put in that position. While her testimony was important, this could have been done in ways that didn't put her in the position in open court, such as a recorded deposition or stipulated testimony. Research has shown that there are many dangers and difficulties when relying on minor testimony. The testimony of children, particularly young children, is quite different from that of adults. In the following clip, we'll read a statement from Siegel and Siegel Law's website regarding this. Children can give false testimony without lying. Children may honestly believe something to be true, that never happened. For example, a child may tell his parents that he saw a monster under his bed. The child may honestly believe this. Adults will recognize that there is no monster under the bed and try their best to convince the child that he is simply mistaken in his belief. While what the child is saying is not true, the child believes it to be true. In most people, whether child or adult, exhibit different behaviors when they are speaking about something believed to be true as opposed to when they are intentionally lying. 
Oftentimes, well-meaning adults, and sometimes not so well-meaning adults, will repeatedly question the child about what happened. Whether intentionally or not, the end result is that false memories can be planted in the child and their testimony can be tainted. Solomon Anderson also mentions this in an interview. Uh, between you know Michael Gravely and uh, and and uh, 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 Gabriel, the the now judge Gabriel, uh, that uh, that started this case is the deputy district attorney that described my niece as an easily manipulated minor witness. You know they 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 knew that they could try and manipulate this case into something worse than than it really was and paint my brother as a monster. And now my brother's not a perfect man, and he did not. You know, he did not conduct himself perfectly through this breakup and through this child custody battle. I understand why people have criticism of him. I do understand why people have criticism of him. I personally have criticism of, of, of it as well. But the reality was that it wasn't stalking and it wasn't murder. He didn't do either of those things. Did he gather information on, on people to bring it to family court? Yes, absolutely, unequivocally. Now, in mentioning the problem with the testimony of children, and even the former DA's statement against minor witnesses being easily manipulated, we are not saying that this is definitely the case with OA. We simply want to point out what is a well-known issue throughout courts and may explain why some of her testimony did not make sense. We also know that Zach had not had contact with his daughter for three years, and she was in Sadie's care alone. So while people make statements about how Zach manipulated and abused his daughter, they were also hearing three years worth of Sadie's influence only. Immediately, before giving her initial statements to police, O.A. was solely under the care and influence of Sadie. We know that O.A. stopped her police interview to go ask her mom questions, again, presenting an opportunity for Sadie to insert her own narrative or experience. At the time, if O.A. hadn't known something on her own during the initial interview with police, they should have just said that it was okay that she didn't know and move on. By allowing her to ask questions or clarify with her mom, they were essentially just getting parts of Sadie's testimony over again, just OA as a mouthpiece. Then, for the next several months of the investigation, OA was interviewed over and over again, being shown photos of evidence and being given details through suggestions she may not have known organically otherwise from people in position of power. She met with the detective several times, and she met with the DA several times as well. So essentially, everyone around her for three entire years, including Sadie, had a vested interest in Zach's guilt. Some people commented that her answers seemed coached, and, as we have said before, Gravely could be seen mouthing along with some of her responses, as if he already knew what she was going to say. Oe testified about what happened the night Zach took her to Sadie's house on the night of April 24th, leading into the early morning of April 25th. She stated that Zach had parked in the bar parking lot next door to Sadie's house and backed into a parking space. She states that she stayed in the front seat of the car and watched him go up to the living room window. She said she saw him put a recording device in the air conditioning unit attached to the living room window. She then testified that she got out and went up to the window and looked in. Oe then testifies that while leaving, Zach then pulls the car into the driveway, gets out of the car again to go take a picture of Rosalio's license plate and steals some papers out of his vehicle. She then says he rings the doorbell before running back to the car to drive away. Previously, in episode 1, we had said that Zach had brought Oe to Sadie's house because she was upset that he had a new girlfriend, so he just wanted to prove to her that he and Sadie were both in new relationships and moving on. We do want to take the opportunity to correct again our previous assertion that Zach had given this as the reason for the visit. It was brought to our attention that that was not actually Zach's version of events, but it is the story that OA told Zenith following these events. 
Zach has not been able to clarify because he did not testify and has been unable to comment further due to his pending appeal, although he remains anxious to do so. What we can share is the following clip from his police interview. When asked about whether he was stalking, he was open about checking into some things involving Sadie that concerned him on behalf of the well-being of his children. So we're investigating a case of stalking um, involving your children's mother, Sadie. <laughs> sure. All right. So that's what we want to talk to you about. Okay. I just want to look out for the well-being of my kids. I don't know what you're getting at. Um, stalking. I don't, don't really know what the laws or the rules are there. I've taken an interest and I've gone and I've looked at some things just to get a bit of truth for myself. I'm mm -hmm. seeing somebody else. She's got the right to see somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to make a big fucking deal out of it. You were making a big deal. You were, you were checking things out. You know, I, I like mean, based on what you're telling me today, you were checking things out. You yeah. were watching out. Do you take pictures? No. you take video? No. you take audio recording? No. Nothing. No, so you had the same bullshit accusations? No, I didn't. Look, there were a couple occasions when I went to verify it, but making it this thing like I'm stalking her, I'm tracking her, I fucking hacked her cell phone or whatever, take a goddamn like I didn't. Okay, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it's bullshit. It's bullshit. The police would claim all he did is lie in this interview, but this sounds like someone being pretty forthright in my opinion. Sadie also testifies that she heard the doorbell ring and looked out the window to see a black car speeding away, assuming that it was Zach's. But what does the evidence show? If you look at a map of the house and the bar parking lot, there are a few major inconsistencies with their testimony. We'll include these maps in our Facebook group for your review if you wish. Sadie's living room window is oriented on the exact opposite side of the house as the bar parking lot, with lots of large bushes in between. So it would have been very difficult for Owe to have seen Zach go up to the window from the car, let alone be able to see in detail what he would have been doing there. The front door is tucked back completely out of the sightline of the second driveway because of the other unit jutting out so far, so it would have been nearly impossible for OA to have seen Zach go ring the doorbell from the car. Also, because of the lack of sightline from the door to the second driveway, plus the fact that Zach's typical route back home leads away from the front door, not crossing past it again, it is impossible for Sadie to have seen Zach's vehicle from the window. But what does this mean? How else would Oe have been able to have seen what she claims if there were physical limitations? She was questioned by this on cross-examination in the following clip. You said you saw your dad with a recording device and that you also saw your dad put a cell phone into the air conditioning unit. Correct. During this time, you are still in the vehicle. Yes. It's dark outside. Mm, but light enough where you can still see. You said it was the middle of the night. It is. That doesn't mean... I have 20-20 vision, so I can see. Oh, okay. Even if OA has 20-20 vision as she claims, it would take more than 20-20 vision to see through buildings and bushes at a time when it was already dark and the vehicle was facing the opposite direction. It would require x-ray vision. We don't want to accuse her of lying, but could it be possible that OA's memories of what happened that night could have been influenced by hearing Sadie's version of events and over time the physical things she witnessed and the narrative she heard combined into one memory? Maybe she saw Zach walk towards the house, but did she see what he specifically did? But hearing Sadie's accusations of what he did could have caused her to add the context to what she did witness improperly. We do not know what happened that night. But we do know based on the evidence, it is hard to rectify the pieces of this night that just don't seem physically possible. 
This could explain some other things that OA says she remembered from that time period that are questionable. There is specific evidence of this at trial. In the following clip, she's able to state with exact specificity how many marijuana plants Zach was alleged to have in his home. Um, at your father's residence, what, if anything, do you know about um, uh, drugs being produced there, made there somehow? Um, quite a bit. Okay. So uh, what drugs do you remember uh, being uh, produced there in some fashion? Uh, marijuana. And what do you, briefly, what do you remember about the process that you saw? How was it being done? Um, <laughs> there were a lot of plants there, and... Do you, do, you, do you believe you know how many? I do. How many? 72. Okay. But she was unable to even positively identify a picture of marijuana, despite D.A. gravely labeling it under his breath to the ADA prior to showing it. So uh, now I'm just going to show you a couple of quick pictures. Um, so the first picture is which? No, uh, marijuana. State's Exhibit 1. Okay, so again, that's State's Exhibit 1, number 307. It's going to show up on the TV screen. I'm just going to ask you if you recognize this uh, item from, from uh, your father's home. Is that something familiar to you from your father's home? Um, can I ask what that is? No, no. <laughs> okay. 72 is an oddly specific number to remember, especially by a child three years afterwards. But then she could not identify the item in the picture shown to her. In another instance, she claims in testimony that she went down to Zach's basement because one of her brothers dropped a Lego down the stairs and she went with the brother because the basement was creepy. But in her original police statement, she said her brother was playing down in the basement because he liked it. Another moment of her testimony that went viral was regarding an allegation of a gun. Back on May 19th of 2020, when OA met with police to provide information corroborating her mom's stalking allegations, things took a turn. Here is her testimony about what happened in that interview. I last was talking to you, um, I was asking you about a moment on the May 19th interview where you asked for a moment to speak to your mom. Do you remember that? Yes. And when that happened, were, was it just you and her in a room for a while? Mm, I want to say, like, not for a little while, but, like, a couple of seconds, yeah. Okay. Maybe a minute. And did you ask your mom for some advice? I did. Okay. And what was your mom's advice to you? To absolutely tell. Okay. What I had asked her. Okay. And and so uh, when you came, so the, at that point, did law enforcement come back in the room? Um, they told me to go back into the room and then they kind of left me there for a little bit and then came back in and talked to me. Okay. And when they came back and talked to you, um, and during this interview that we're talking about, you're, you're, you're not, your mom's not present, right? Uh, while this particular interview is going on. No. Okay. So um, when you came back, uh, what was the information then that you wanted to then uh, let uh, the police know um, uh, after you got back in the room? Um, I did tell the detective about the unregistered gun in California. That who had an unregistered gun in California? My dad. Okay. And then I also had talked about um, my dad growing and selling. After asking a talk with Sadie in the middle of her interview, she then comes back and ends up bringing up an unregistered gun that Zach allegedly had when he lived in California. She also brought up the drugs. 
It sounds like they were trying to find other charges they could use to hold Zack in jail besides just the stalking allegation. But in this May 19, 2020 interview, Oe told the police that she never actually saw any gun. Here's a clip of Zack's brother Solomon discussing this gun allegation. He absolutely, unequivocally did not own a firearm. He refused to have a firearm. Moreover, he he told me when I stayed at his house, I have a shotgun that's used for hunting. It's a slug gun. Mm-hmm. And I had that in his home. And, and he actually was very upset with me about it because because he could be charged with that that firearm being in his home. And he said very specifically that that gun is not allowed on his property and that it needed to live somewhere else. So there was no gun in his property. There was no gun at all. Mm-hmm. Period. When this unregistered gun was brought up in trial, the story changed and things got a little out of hand when defense attorney Nicole Muller asked O.A. about this claim. Nicole asked O.A. if it's correct that she never actually saw the gun since it was in California where O.A. never went. And O.A. seems to not know how to answer but claims she did see it. However, she struggles to describe it. You talked on um, redirect about the unregistered gun in California, but you never saw that firearm correct in what circumstance the unregistered gun was in california right Uh, at one point yes so you're saying then the gun wasn't always in california no what kind of gun was it do you know i'm not aware of guns like that i don't handle guns like that you said guns like that. What do you meaning, mean? meaning, I don't know. Meaning, I'm not familiar with guns like that, but I can tell you there was one. What color was it? Black. Was it long, short? Can you describe it with your hands? It was short. It wasn't... It was probably a pistol of some sort. I'm not sure. Okay, where, where did you see it? It was at the Mequon house. So you say that this unregistered gun is in California to law enforcement. Up until today, did you ever say anything about this gun being in Wisconsin? When I had talked about this gun, there were other traumatic events going on in my life. So I, this isn't... You don't have to defend your answer. I'm, I'm trying not to defend it. It's what happened. It's legitimately what happened. Like, there were other things going on and this isn't something that's related even to this situation. But She starts to get emotional and seems to not know how to answer. After several attempts to avoid answering, she makes the chilling claim. I was threatened with that gun for your information. Judge, I'm going to ask that that aunt that be struck. That wasn't my, uh, that wasn't, no, no, that no, wasn't no, my, no, no, no. repeat your no. question. Um, it, it, it will come as no surprise to you that, uh, we're going to go into the library for a moment. This causes the trial to take a recess so that Oe can be provided with her own attorney to talk to. Oe does not take the stand again following this. Once again, we see a story change. To me, it sounded like she struggled with her testimony about the gun getting pushback and she didn't know where to go from there. This wasn't a planned part of her testimony, so if there was some coaching going on, this wouldn't have been something she would have been prepared for. What we see is a young girl who has been through a traumatic experience and is taking part in something no child should ever have to. While many scrutinize and blame Zach for her being in this situation, I also believe that Sadie should have done more to protect her. 
she could have demanded that her testimony be handled differently. Despite O.A. never providing context or details for her claim that she was threatened with a gun, assumptions would be made that Zach was the one who did this and people hated him even more. What kind of conclusions could the jury have drawn from this? Even if they were told to disregard, how do you unhear allegations of a child being threatened with a weapon? Regardless of the reason for the factual errors, all testimony of both Sadie and O.A. should be scrutinized against the facts. But another key takeaway from the testimony of O.A. and Sadie is their testimony is pretty isolated for the stalking allegations. You'll notice that none of their testimony has a single thing to do with the disappearance of Rosalio Gutierrez, his alleged murder, or in hiding a corpse. Their testimony speaks only to the stalking, and much of it is either false or purely based on assumptions, hearsay, and irrelevant information. In the second part of this episode, we'll go into the remainder of the trial, where we see the prosecution use more shady tactics to cinch their conviction. Then finally, we address the verdict. Check back tomorrow as we present the conclusion of Wrongful Season 1, The Trial of Zachariah Anderson. Bye everyone and thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and want to catch our next episode, please make sure to follow Wrongful on all of your favorite podcast platforms and don't forget to rate us. We would also love it if you would follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X under Wrongful Pod. Keep the fun going in between episodes by joining our Wrongful Podcast group on Facebook to see evidence, discuss episodes, and more.